Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 147, and we're almost into the fourth decade of the 19th century. Cape Town was burgeoning. Trade was starting to pick up. There was also a paradox. The real effects of the emancipation of slaves, which started in 1834, was only really felt in 1838 because that was the year the 38,000 slaves were finally allowed to leave their masters. The abolition of slavery led to the creation of several private commercial banks, which then offered cheap credit to wage labour employers. The British Parliament allocated £20 million as compensation for those who'd previously owned slaves and were now stripped of what they called their property to be shared out across the territories. Of the £20 million, £1.2 million was allocated to the Cape. Though a certain proportion of this money got stuck in Great Britain in the hands of agents, as we've heard in previous episodes, the amount that arrived in the Cape, mainly in 1836 and 1837, quintupled the sum of money in circulation. This, in turn, caused the raising of prices. It was inflationary and also led to increased labour costs. Some of the money was invested in new banks, as well as providing capital to build new houses around the Cape. One of these banks was the Eastern Province Bank, which launched in 1838 in Grahamstown, which went on to become Barclays Bank, and during the sanctions period of apartheid morphed into First National Bank, and it's still around. Compensated emancipation at the Cape was a major social rupture, ending as it did 182 years of legal slavery and changing the status of these 38,000 people. The slave-like apprenticeship period that followed emancipation in 1834 had now expired. Coy and other members of the free black community continued to work mostly in farm employment, although a few became market gardeners and joined the growing artisanal class in the villages of the Cape. Emancipation at the Cape freed slaves into the category free black, which encompassed all people of colour native to the Western Cape. Hottentots was the colonial term for the Khoi and Bushmen the colonial term for the San. Bastards were those who had a white father and coy mother, and bastard Hottentots were those who had a slave father and a coy mother. By the time of emancipation, the slave population of the Western Cape was predominantly Creole, including descendants of slaves brought from the west and east coasts of Africa, Madagascar, India, and the Dutch East Indies, and children born of a slave mother and a free father. The close cultural and social relations between Khoisan and slaves and the incorporation of the Khoisan into the Cape colonial economy contributed to the heterogeneous culture of the rural poor at this stage. The introduction of prize Negroes, as they were known, who'd been rescued from other nations' slave ships by the British and brought to the Cape between 1808 and 1815, then again in the 1830s to remedy the labour shortage in the Western Cape, also served to increase the polyglot nature of the rural poor of the Cape. This diversity of geographical and cultural origins affected the emergence of an official racial terminology to cover all of these groups to simplify matters. Thus, while the category of free black continued to be used into the 1840s in government correspondence regarding labour legislation, from 1837 the statistical blue books began listing people of Khoi and San descent, free blacks, prize negroes and freed people under the category coloured. Just by the way, all historians know about these blue books, which are a fantastic repository of information 
in South Africa that began to be published in 1821 and ended just before Union in 1909. The name Blue Book is the colonial office term used for these statistics, providing information from colonial governments for more than a century on all aspects of the economy and the administration of the territories. Their covers were blue, thus the Blue Books. So after 1838 and into the 1840s, these newly freed laborers were able to move to the mission stations or to occasional patches of land where they could live relatively undisturbed. From there, they could hire themselves out to farmers, secure in the knowledge that they could retreat to the mission stations or their little plots before finding other situations. They also knew that wives and children could be protected from exploitation by farm owners and their sons. The farmers regarded this freedom as a threat by and large. Mission station residents could also join the gangs of laborers who traveled around the country during the various harvest seasons. This process meant that the mission stations grew rapidly after 1838. Some free slaves moved to vacant land. Many made their way to Bethelsdorp and Cut River mission stations or across the Orange where the Griqua were living, but most headed for the towns. Freed slaves inside Cape Town moved to Boerkarp and to the area which became known later as District 6. The migration into the city of several thousand ex-enslaved persons from the countryside put a great strain on the physical infrastructure of Cape Town. Researchers have used modern GIS mapping technology and rate rolls compiled by the Cape Town municipality from 1842 onwards to identify which houses had the official occupant who was an ex-slave or a Muslim. These were two overlapping categories, by the way, and to locate them in the urban space. What this has shown was a surge in segregation inside the city of Cape Town after emancipation, both along economic and social lines. The ex-enslaved came to inhabit the poorer areas of the city. But it also meant that the broken slave families began to be reconstructed, with men as the head and ex-slave women and children now withdrawing from the labor market. Male and female slaves had cohabited freely before this, at least in the city, although marriage between slaves was not permitted until 1823, a scant few years before emancipation. Up until 1838, the complex social character of the Cape meant the soldiers and sailors could enter the slave lodge in Cape Town, which became known as a sink of vice as the men sought out the company of slave women. The women there could wield their power over these men who were disconnected from their social systems by the vastness of the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, demanding and receiving payment of some kind. These women were not allowed to form normal relationships with the men around them. Their male partners were emasculated, although the lives of the slave men and women on the frontier farms was a little different. They did live in more recognized family units. They were able to form a modicum of normality in what was a totally abnormal way of life. On the farms at the time of emancipation, a new form of relationship between master and servant developed rapidly and a whole new variety of social relations were formed. Thousands of families stayed on farms as labor tenants and a new bifurcated labor force developed. On one hand, there were seasonal workers who migrated from place to place with the residents outside of the farms, and on the other, there were permanent workers living alongside the owner. The farm owner had to pay the workers, and part of that payment now was through alcohol, starting what we call the DOP system. This allowed winemakers and other farmers in the Cape to actually increase productivity they no longer had to provide food and lodging for slaves. They now could hire them on an ad hoc basis. These freed men and women, though, had skills. 
They were the builders, the masons, the painters, carpenters, blacksmiths, tanners, saddle makers, cobblers, tailors, boat and wagon builders, the fishermen. Some slaves were hired out by the farmers. These same men retained their artisanal skills after freedom and were eminently hireable, as you can well imagine. The farmers had to pay the workers who were no longer slaves. This cut into their profits. Thus, they could approach these new banks freshly launched. The economy of the Cape actually developed quite quickly after emancipation, with farmers reporting better harvests, more wheat and grapes, more meat, and yet many were pushed closer to bankruptcy as they grappled with labour costs where previously there were very little. It was after 1834 that the island of St. Helena sent their freed slaves, all Chinese, to Cape Town. Together with the St. Helenians, who had migrated earlier, they became known on the streets of Cape Town as the Saints. The Yon family, for example, who live in the Cape today, are one of these. The descendants left South Africa in the hundreds later when the apartheid system was implemented by the National Party, taking advantage of the British citizenship through St. Helena. But that was later. Another group of freed slaves were the Krumen, spelt K-R-U-M-E-N. The Kru are West African people who have a long history of being recruited as seamen by Europeans. They are a coastal people from Sierra Leone and Liberia, and others were men set free by British anti-slaver ships in the mid-1830s. Some from this region were also known as the Lascars. To ensure their status as freemen, they actually tattooed their foreheads and the bridge of their nose with indigo dye to distinguish them from the slaves. The British Royal Navy experienced a high level of attrition on voyages, and the crew were known to cope with the heat the rough seas and life on these ships better than the average seamen. They were also brought up navigating the coastal routes around West Africa, the rivers and the estuaries, and they were natural seafarers. The first crewmen employed by the British Navy in Simonstown arrived in 1838, and for the next 100 years they would be integral to Simonstown Naval Dockyard. Authorities in the Cape tried to keep the crewmen separate from the other Cape people of colour, but many married and settled in the colony anyway. More than 20 crewmen are buried in the Seaforth Old Burial Ground in Simonstown, where their graves can still be seen, and crewmen is the name used to describe them on their gravestones. Another group were the Seedies, who were different from the Lascars and the crew. Their ancestors hailed from East Africa. Their name comes from the Arabic Sayyidi, meaning saintly, and that was the name given to Africans in Islamic North India. Sidi is also linked to the Hindi word Sidi, which means black. Muslim seamen who came from the Swahili coast, Zanzibar in particular, were also called Sidis. As we continue our saga, we'll hear more about these sailors who had such a remarkable impact on Southern African history. The freeing of the slaves set off a renewed drive for the land, with many heading to the Transorangia region, where they joined others seeking a new proto-modern national group fitting with the Drosters or the Kwikwa. Rapidly, the tension grew between these new freed slaves these squatter and peasant communities, and the settlers, as well as the trekboers. Formerly, the men and women who were owned as slaves were managed by overseers. Now, as emancipation revealed new power for the workers, these relationships developed, they mutated. Among the farmers were an industrious class who worked the farms themselves, assisted by their families and a few slaves or now labourers. There were other types of farmers, a class represented by the absentee landlord, who cut a figure like a European nobleman. 
They lived in towns but owned farms in the countryside, worked by the slaves, the laborers, and managed by a steward or an overseer. These landed gentlemen visited their farms, usually in spring, checked that all was in order, flipped a few wrists, swanned about on their horse-drawn two-wheeled cart, then returned to their comfortable townhouses around Cape Town. This has been going on since the 1600s, although I'm sure you can recognize the 21st century in this lifestyle. The second group of non-laboring farmers were, and still are, grain and wine farmers who lived on the land themselves. While they didn't necessarily put their own shoulders to their wheels, they were the direct overseers of their land and gave orders to the knecht, or manager, on a daily basis. Slave owners had a remarkable economic luxury. They didn't need to save cash. Owners would have a high level of consumption and indulged in luxuries. This was no longer a pioneer society. Slaves meant these people didn't need skills. They just lounged about making a mockery of their ancestors who could build a wall or shoot a buck, raise a barn, carve a boat. They drank and partied, chased each other's wives, but were quite useless in a crisis. The slave owners were leisure class and now slaves were free. It was the start of the fourth decade of the 19th century. The slaves had the skills, the leisure class did not, and now this leisure class really needed the new banks. So the abolition of slavery resulted in the liquidation of a substantial portion of the capital that had been invested in these individuals who were enslaved. It was a paradoxical consequence of slavery that it permitted the existence of this leisure class, but it also helped create a class of impoverished European settlers who now became indebted to the financiers. As the false economy of using free labor disappeared, many of the frontier trekboers found their way of life threatened. The added ignominy of having people they regarded as heathens now being treated as equals chafed still further, and the great trek accelerated. Farmers in the Eastern Cape, the Albany district around Grahamstown, had learned to concentrate on livestock after their harvests failed year after year. In Volume 16 of Records of the Cape Colony, compiled by the historian George McCoy Teal, there's a letter of a farmer who summed up his experience. My wheat! Two months ago, the most promising I ever saw in any country is now cut down and in heaps for burning. The rust has utterly destroyed it. My barley from the drought and a grub that attacks the blade just under the surface produce little more than I sowed. The disasters were racking up for this farmer. My Indian corn, very much injured by the caterpillar. Cabbages destroyed by lice. The beans all scorched by the hot winds and carrots run to seed. He had managed to grow a few potatoes, but only a few, and his cows were now dry because there was no grass. But things were going to get a lot worse because his daughter was dying. On Saturday, while watching by the sickbed of my dear little girl, I was startled by the cry of wild dogs. He ran to the window to see a pack of around thirty. It was too late. Before I could drive them off, they had killed twenty of my flock. He only had 27 sheep, so this disaster was now a catastrophe. I stood for a moment thinking of my misery, my dying child, my blasted crops, my scattered and ruined flock. God's will be done. I had need of fortitude to bear up against such accumulated misery. Farewell. So, we need to shift our gaze further northeast then, back to Natal. That's where the Boers had begun to recover from their war against Ngana. They had defeated him in battle and he was on the run, but determined to continue leading the Amazulu people. 
One of the nuances of this period to keep in mind was the real difference between what the British and the Voortrekkers were up to. The narrative these days is somewhat blurred, but we really do need to understand that the Boer and British political motivation was like chalk and cheese. It was much later that whites would be lumped together in a single group. At this point in our history, these two ethnicities were enemies, and the dislike or even hatred between them was stewing away. Andres Pretorius and his van commander dealt Tingana a body blow at Blood River. Then the Zulu king lashed out at the Battle of Upati. While all of that was going on, Major Charters and his 120 British troops were still in Port Natal. It was only on January 2, 1839, that Charters got wind of Pretorius's great victory at Blood River on the 16th of December. Charters represented the empire, and he immediately jotted down his thoughts in a letter about the invasion of Zululand, which he sent to the Voortrekker Volksraad, rebuking the Boers for what he said was their great slaughter of the Zulus and the unwarranted invasion of their country. He warned the Boers that this action had caused the marked displeasure of the British government, and they should not contemplate sending another commander against the Zulu or Dingana. The British attitude was that the Boers had stirred up the Zulu hornet's nest, and that Repeat Retief and the others had prodded Dingana once too often. It wasn't his fault, said the British. Here were a folk arriving on land that was not theirs, and the owners just happened to be the warlike Zulus. What else were they going to do? Charters had already seized a store of ammunition belonging to the Voortrekkers when Karl Lundmann, who was Pretorius's 2IC, arrived to claim it in late January 1839. Charters refused to hand over the important gunpowder and lead. The Major first wanted Lundmann to promise that the Trekkers would remain on the south side of the Tugela River and, if he got his ammo back, to use it only for self-defence. Lantman rejected this pledged demand, pointing out that the Voortrekkers were a free and independent people and could make whatever decision about whatever land they wanted. Lantman didn't get his ammunition and left in a huff. Shortly afterwards, though, Charters was called back to Cape Town. Before he departed on 20th of January 1839, he handed over command in Natal to Captain Henry Jervis of the 72nd Regiment, then took the long route overland back to the Cape. Jervis, meanwhile, was about to play an interesting role in the next part of our story. There were only five English traders left at Port Natal, living at Congella, which was a miserable little stockade surrounded by a palisade of tree trunks. The British soldiers, living at Fort Victoria nearby, had a proper roof over their heads. Throughout the year of 1839, the fort enclosed barracks, officers' huts, a magazine, a clinic, or a hospital, as they called it, a few sheds and tents for the commissariat stores. The fort had an earthwork readout and a gun emplacement. This gun wasn't aimed at the Amazulu. It was pointing at the Voortrekker lagers down the coast. About a kilometre away to the west, down the bay, was a cluster of three Boer lagers. The fort was a statement about the power of the empire and a deterrent for the people they regarded as errant members of the Cape Colony. Even now, the British did not recognise the Boers as a people developing their own independence. The British had no fear of the Amazulu. They feared the Boers. One of the misfortunes of South African history is that when a public officer pitches up who is actually able to resolve differences between cultures and races through his or her tact and capacity for diplomacy, they are often unable to complete their work. Captain Jervis was one of these. While the Boers resented the presence of his troops, he managed to improve relations with the folk. He knew that the Trekkers wanted their own free port, 
and had largely given up on the idea of using Delagoa Bay. The Boers wanted Port Natal as their Republica Natalia port. It was what Pete Retief had tried to negotiate. Jervis was also business-minded, and it was he who spotted something in the ground that was to change Natal's history. Coal. It was while his men were applying finishing touches to Fort Victoria that Jervis stumbled on this vital resource at a place called Compensation. That's a settlement 43 kilometres northeast of the port on the now modern route to Mshali Tongat, and he immediately drew attention of Cape Governor Sir George Napier to this great find. And just another little aside, Compensation is where farmer Edmund Morwood grew the first sugar in Natal in 1851. But it's coal we're talking about. For half a century, following the arrival of the fur trekkers in the late 1830s, numerous outcrops of coal had been haphazardly exploited for domestic consumption by the white farming community of the region, and from the 1840s, small consignments had been transported for sale as far afield as Peter Maritzburg. Deposits had now also been found on properties in the Newcastle vicinity, along the Biggersbach, near Ladysmith, and in limited quantities in the Msinga district and on the Mvoti and Tugela rivers. The discovery of coal changed the British government's perception of this little backwater called Natal. Still, it was going to take many more years before the coal would be mined in any consistent way for export, starting after the Zulu War of 1879. Meanwhile, and just to keep things on an even keel, Jervis had handed the foretrekkers back their important ammunition and used the opportunity, as he delivered it, to check on what they were up to. His report is very important. On his trip, he was approached by a local Amazulu that complained that a Boer called Kemp had assaulted a worker. Jervis, acting under the Cape of Good Hope Punishment Act, summoned Kemp to appear before him on a charge of assaulting a native, as they put it. Kemp's father objected, saying the Futrekers had their own justice system, their own magistrates, and they had authority over their own people. Jervis sent an urgent message to Sir George Napier about what he should do, and the governor said, it would be inexpedient to take further steps. So the matter was dropped. This meant no attempt was made on the part of the British officials to assert any authority over the foretrekkers, a very important moment in the minds of those observing all the goings-on. During his investigation, Jervis travelled to the new town of Pinamaritzburg, built along what was known as Bushman's Rant. 2,000 trekkers were living in the well-organised little town by 1839, and they had dug a canal to lead water about five kilometres from the streams to their gardens, which Jervis said were beautifully maintained. The town was laid out in a form of parallelogram, a mile and a half long, a mile wide. As he toured Natal, he found other Boer camps less fortunate. Those at Mlazi, south of the port, had a failure of the wheat crop. At Kongela itself, the Boers were dependent on black farmers nearby for their pumpkins and millies. The Boers had hired black herders, who were now ensuring their cattle were safe. Some of their children suffered from pink eye. Otherwise, the diseases that had struck the trekkers earlier in the year around the Little Tugela were now a thing of the past, at least in these coastal lagers. Jervis recognised that the trekkers had internal divisions and dissensions, but he also realised that they would always stand united against the world. His report is the first to analyse the trekkers where they were, where they had arrived, as opposed to British reports emanating from the Cape. He saw them as they were, independent, not British. The captain had visited these new Boer towns springing up, including Vienen, the place of weeping, and he wrote, With all this, not a doubt was entertained of their being able to make their footing good in the country. That, despite family squabbles, he said, but he noted something else. 
which was going to cause political headaches for leaders of the folk in the future. In regard to their uniting under one head, I see no probability of it, for even of their folk's rod, it is said scarcely two of them agree, and they are equally difficult to come to an agreement in the choice of their magistrates. The trekkers were constantly at each other's throats. Their determination to remain independent included independent of each other. Jervis, though, was hard at work trying to bring the Boers and Dingana to some kind of negotiated agreement. Both sides were stung by the other's violence, but both had cooled down somewhat and had the satisfaction of the other's defeat, Blood River, then Upati. The Trekkers told Jervis they wanted peace, but didn't know how to achieve it. There was extreme suspicion between the Boers and the Zulu. Dingana also indicated he wanted to talk. Jervis had reached out to the Zulu king through the young Theophilus Shepston, the son of an 1820 settler who was now a Wesleyan missionary. Shepston was fluent in Isikosa and Zulu, and Kitchen Dutch, as they called this new language, which we now call Afrikaans. Shepston picked up intelligence from local Indunas that the Zulu king wanted peace, but the Boers had offered steep terms and he had refused to negotiate, sensing treachery. These Induna were complaining, though, that the Amabutu were tired and that Dingana should put the matter right with the Amabunu, in their words. They also said that Dingana should consider paying tribute and returning the cattle captured from the Boers, an unusual suggestion coming from the Izinduna. Jervis sent one of the five settlers left at Port Natal, Henry Ogle, who, as you know, was an old hand at Zululand matters, to talk to Dingana. Dingana responded by sending Gambusha, his Nkeku advisor, to the British camp in February 1839. Gambusha told Jervis that Dingana wanted the British to act as allies, to protect them from future attacks by the Fuertrekkers. The British captain said the British would not be allies. They would only confine their role to that of honest broker, and Gambusha took the message back to Dingana. And that was the role that Jervis adopted on 23rd of March, 1839, when the Nyaku arrived back at Fort Victoria with two Amakosi representing Dingana. As a sign of good faith, the chiefs brought 300 of the Boer horses with them, captured during the fighting of the previous year. A few days later, Andres Pretorius met face to face with the Zulu envoys and described himself somewhat grandiloquently, as John Lombard notes, as the chief commandant of the right worshipful the representative assembly of the South African Society of Natal. As you'll hear next episode, Jervis had managed to get the two sides together, but the Boers at this stage trusted the British less than the Zulu, and this was going to play havoc with the upcoming negotiations. And who was this South African Society of Natal, anyway? We'll find out more next episode. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog where I'll load an update about this episode, and you can email me from there too, or direct message me on x at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.